aside for the reading of God's Word this morning from Acts chapter 15. We'll be reading the first six and the last six verses of Acts chapter 15. Page 923 in your pew Bibles. Then we'll pray and we'll get right after it. Listen now as we read together the living words of the living God from Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers, or brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And now to the end of the chapter, the last six verses, beginning in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. What a joy it is, Lord Jesus, to study this great narrative of your works through the Holy Spirit in the infancy of our church. Bless the preaching of your word again this morning to both the glory of our triune God and the edification of your people. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We find ourselves this morning at the very midpoint of the book of Acts, and in many ways, our study this morning in Acts chapter 15 is the turning point of the book. There is no going back after Acts chapter 15. As has been mentioned, I think, the title of the book of Acts is kind of unfortunate, What we really have here is not necessarily the Acts of the Apostles, which we certainly have, but really we see the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit in the foundation, establishment, 
and expansion of his body in the post-resurrection New Testament. But we'll stick with the book of Acts. We see leading up to Acts chapter 15, don't we, the outline of Luke's narrative come alive from the very opening verses. We remember in chapter 1, we see Jesus himself ascending to heaven and telling the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit, which happens at the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. We see uh, in chapters 3, 4, and 5, the growth and expansion of this church. And then through persecution after 6 and 7 and 8, we see Paul saved miraculously in Damascus in chapter 9. And then we've seen Acts 10 and 11, 12 and 13. We see the Gentiles being phased into this glorious church with Peter and Cornelius in chapter 10. And then Barnabas himself going to get Paul, as we saw in Tarsus in chapter 11. And then the first missionary journeys through 12, 13, and 14. And we find ourselves today in chapter 15 with the first serious threatening conflict in this church. And this conflict and this threatening is real. The results of which will determine what this church is and where it goes. Now, I mentioned to a couple people this morning that preaching Acts chapter 15 to the Presbyterian minister is like waving a New York strip in front of a Wattweiler. There's two things you know that will happen. There will be much saliva and heavy consumption, but what you're not sure of is what will be the resulting damage to the surroundings. So I hope to keep that damage to a minimum as I proudly tell you that this is one of two chapters in the Word of God that in a number of months, uh, several in this room will go in front of Presbytery to get licensed, and one of the questions invariably in licensure will be, where in the Bible does it teach Presbyterianism? And Tony Mangifesti will proudly say it is in Acts chapter 18 with Moses and his father-in-law Jethro and Acts chapter 15. And those are true words. So we'll call it this morning, not the council in Jerusalem, we will call it the first general assembly. As you can see in your outline, we're going to go through this council or this general assembly verse by verse. But before we do that, let me briefly explain to you where we are going this morning, because I believe this chapter in this text is showing us something deeper than a defense of biblical church polity, which although I'm certain is there. But as you may have seen in the sermon title, there are in this passage two conflicts. They involve two brothers. We will see two completely different outcomes to those conflicts. But both conflicts center around the same thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the works of a sovereign God. One of the conflicts that we'll see about 
this morning is about the gospel's very definition. The other about the gospel's missional application. One conflict is public. It cannot be more public. One is completely private. One is from without. One is from within. As I mentioned, one is doctrinal. One is practical. One is heavy and demands technical, biblical precision. One is purely emotional. One draws the entire church together. One is confined, most likely, to a single room between two brothers. One ends in rejoicing, unity, and victory. One ends in grief, sorrow, and tears. One unites the church with one foundation. One divides two brothers permanently until they meet in heaven. But as we will discover, both of these conflicts are orchestrated by the sovereign hand of a loving Savior. They are His acts in growing His church, His body through His Spirit by the very flawed and sinful men that He has come to save. So as in the outline, our text this morning is divided into those two conflicts. We'll spend the majority of our time this morning on the first conflict in verses 1 through 33, and that is the conflict at the Jerusalem Council. And we'll finish with the conflict between Paul and Barnabas, defined for us in verses 34 and 36 to the end of the chapter. So hold on, and you might want to put your finger on Galatians chapter 2, because we will refer to it, this is Paul's explanation of the conflict that we're going to learn about in a little more detail. But first, the case itself, verse 1. But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is what they say uh, in baseball as down the pipe. This is a fastball, it's waist high, and it's right over the plate. And thank the Lord for it. Would that all church conflicts were this clear. As we will learn, the custom of the laws of Moses meant more than just circumcision mentioned here, but that is the one uh, initiation into the club It must go through them, they say. The them is Israel. Can I just say a few words here about this? There is a tendency to want to go back nostalgically to all of the trappings and goings-on There's even uh, systems of doctrine and teaching in in the Christian church that says we should not even be evangelizing Israel or Jews. Let me just say 
that the old adage that you may have heard, he came to his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to be the sons of God, is usually taught in such a way that he came to Israel and Israel received him not. So plan B for the Lord, in parentheses, was to go after the Gentiles because they had been, he had been rejected by his own people. But that's, that's not even the teaching of that verse from the Apostle Paul in Romans. The verse is pretty clear. He came to his own, <clears throat> but his own received him not. But to as many as his own who did receive him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. So the adding of the Gentiles, as we've seen starting in verse 10, and now completely through the rest of the book of Acts, is no parentheses. It's the very people of God from eternity, God's plan. <clears throat> that is free. Take it as you will. <clears throat> Look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, those are the Judaizers, Paul and Barnabas, now do you notice how this, completely through this, and really starting at about in, in verse 11, you very rarely see the name Paul without Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. <clears throat> they were to go, uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. What is the question? Do we, in fact, have to be circumcised, us being Gentiles like those in Antioch? Do we have to be circumcised in order to be saved? This we get a little hint here about the importance of our two characters that play out in our drama this morning. And you see the intended emphasis here with Paul and Barnabas. I don't, I don't think you can miss it. They are the main players in the case and gather the ones to come to Jerusalem. They take part in the floor debate to come after the, and after the decision, they're asked to come back with the letter to the Gentiles. And back to, in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas decide it's time for another missionary journey. Let's keep going at verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, who? Paul and Barnabas. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gen uh, conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Paul, the theologian and factual one. Barnabas, as we recall, the son of what? Encouragement son of consolation. What a pair these two made. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. They're there for this assembly. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. There's the addition to the other things associated with the law of Moses besides circumcision. Oh boy, <clears throat> we're in the right place at the right time, aren't we? This could get really ugly. But we are rescued by the Presbyterians. Look at verse 6. 
Memorize it. If you have a blue BCO, take a black magic marker and on the outside write Acts 15.6. Look at Luke's editorial comment on the quote from the Pharisees that all must be circumcised to be saved. And this is not Paul or Barnabas. This is Luke's editorial comment in verse 6. It was because the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. That's why they were there. This is why the Wattweiler loves that stake. This is Presbyterianism. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, there are approximately 41,000 Christian denominations. An estimated 30 million plus churches. 2.3 billion professing Christians. Every one of those Christians, including everyone in this room this morning, practice only one of three forms of church government. There are only three. There are as many ways of applying these three as there are types of denominations, but there are only three types. The first type is called prelacy. Think top-down rule. Webster defines the uh, prelacy as this. The government of the Christian church organized and ruled by clerics of high social rank and power from the top down. There is an organization from the top down that we all know, Roman Catholicism, we know who's the head of that church. But it's not only Roman Catholicism that, be, that believes and practices in prelacy. There is the Episcopalian church. There is the Orthodox Christianity in all of its forms. The second type of church government is one that you may be more familiar with, and that is independency. That is just like it sounds. Every church relies on its own internal government. There may be elders. There may be just a pastor and a deacon. <clears throat> and there are as many ways of practicing independency as there are independent churches. But bottom line, there is no top-down structure that can impose any law and demands that are binding to an independent church. And the third type of church is Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism from the Greek word presbyteros, which means both elder and bishop in the New Testament. <clears throat> it's a church that's run and ruled by elders. Now, think about the situation here. There is a group of Jewish believers that have come to Antioch from Judea and are claiming no one can be saved without circumcision. It's hotly debated. They gather elders from the individual churches, head to the General Assembly in Jerusalem to consider and ultimately rule on this question. Full Rottweiler Presbyterianism is the only thing that can satisfy what happens here. 
Feel free to get a hold of your parish elders. They would love to spend many hours with you discussing the intricacies of Presbyterianism polity. Back to the text. The assembly is set, and the first thing that we see is Luke's transcription of the floor debate. And I say that because that's what goes on at every Presbytery meeting and every general assembly in the Presbyterian church. And let's go through this, and we'll make comment as we go through the floor debate. So they get together, they start, and the first thing that that we see in verse 7, it says, and after there had been much debate. So notice, before the main three speeches that Luke writes down for us, they had been hotly much debating this. So if we know how things work, uh, we can assume that both sides got to lay their case. Why the law of Moses must be binding, including circumcision. And then another group would say, this is why it shouldn't, and there was much debate. But then, look who stands up. But then Peter stood up and said to them, But before we hear Peter come to microphone four and be recognized by the moderator, let's turn uh, turn quickly as we need to understand a little more of the background and history of this conflict. We all know from Acts chapter 15 that certain men came down from Judea saying that everyone must be circumcised in order to be saved. But turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, and Paul, recalling this event in Antioch, gives us some clarity. Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... These are the men that we see in Acts 15.2. He was eating with the Gentiles while he was in Antioch. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Look at this next, next part of the text. So that even Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the background of what happened. For Peter was already there when those came up from Judea teaching this. And Peter was straddling the fence with them. Around them, he would act a certain way. And then around the Gentiles, he would act a certain way. And we don't know to what extent and what he actually did, but it says Barnabas even was led astray by their hypocrisy. So now as we go back to the floor of the General Assembly, we see that not only were the group of believers that had come up from Antioch to Judea uh, that caused the controversy, Peter and even Barnabas was part of the mess. Now Peter, to James, most likely the moderator, 
So the floor recognizes that microphone four. Go ahead, sir. That's what they do. Peter says, brothers, you know that in the early days, by the way, do you think that some of them, those Judaizers were thinking, is he going to cave in to Paul? What's he going to do? We know Peter. This is what he says. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And don't you love the next words? And all the assembly fell silent. No wonder the hope of the Judaizers had been demolished. The apostle Peter himself had spoken. Paul must have got to him. Well, here comes Paul and Barnabas together to the mic. Well, let's hope he hasn't got to Barnabas too. Remember back in Antioch, he was citing with us. Back to the floor. The floor recognizes Saul and Barnabas at microphone too. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then after they finished, James replied. Now, I don't know what the plan was for this assembly. Robert's rules of orders were not written for several years to come. It may have been that James, as Jesus' brother, head of the church in Jerusalem, was assigned to make a ruling. We don't know, but certainly it was decided and it becomes binding. Look at what James says. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Simon Peter to James, related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, with these words, uh, with this word of the prophets, agree, just as it is written, and what does he do like any good Jew would do? He quotes the Old Testament. And he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, quote, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, James says, I make a motion before you. My motion is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality 
and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now we know, don't we, what this outcome meant. Verse 23, all caps. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders and with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. There's those two again. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Now, we have in the next portion of the text the exact letter that they wrote to send back to the Gentiles in the church in Antioch and beyond. Certainly, we don't look to avoid controversy. Certainly, we don't want to not fight. But there was something about the decorum that was going on here that is very heartening to us. Whether we should fight is not something that we even think about. Some of us who are born fighters from parents who were fighters have no problem jumping into the fray at the simplest uh, thing. But listen to what John Calvin says about the wisdom of the minister being a fighter. Calvin says, commenting on Paul, Barnabas, and Peter at the council, he says this, the servants of Christ must be no fighters. 2 Timothy 2, 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. But Calvin goes on, but when they see Satan wax so proud that religion cannot any longer continue safe and sound unless he be prevented, they must take up a good heart and rise to resist, entering even into the most hateful of combats. Amen. You're not fighters. We're not fighters. But when we have to, when the very essence of Christianity is at stake, we must not back down to enter into even the most hateful of combats. Love that. Now, here's the letter from the council. The brothers, both of the apostles, uh, the brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. There's those two. They even make the letter. 
Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do where? Well, farewell. The ceremony law, ceremonial law of Moses is over forever. Not a binding part of the church of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting to know, why would he include those things for them to do? And it's interesting to note that when they did rule on this, those are the things that literally went on in worship in the Gentile pagan churches in Antioch and beyond. There was sexual prostitution. There was the uh, uh, sacrificing of meat. And Paul is just simply telling them that you cannot participate in these things because you are a part of us now. Finally, the reaction was clear and unanimous. Look at verses 30 through 33. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, there they are again, remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. End of conflict one. The church has her marching orders. Peace again, has been established for a time. Verse 36, time for the next missionary journey. Verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. Things look great. Paul's comment is almost an afterthought of the excitement to come. It's like he's saying, hey, pal, that was something. This is behind us. Let's, let's take another trip together to see what's up with all the brothers. And considering the life-altering events that had just taken place in the weeks and months preceding on this crucial doctrinal matter, we are almost as quickly in shock to see what happens next and how quickly it goes down between these men that are as close as any in the New Testament. Conflict 2, verse 37. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 
And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. This stems from a little comment in passing that we saw back in Acts 13, 13. John Mark, who was Barnabas's cousin, was on the first missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas. And the text in chapter 13 simply says, and we would miss it and dismiss it. It says, and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. That's all it says. That's all we know. Now Barnabas, I'm sure, with good reason, wants to bring him again on the second missionary journey for another try, another chance. And Paul goes ballistic. And I'm sure Barnabas reciprocated. And this conflict ends with arguably the saddest words in the New Testament, so that they separated from each other. All that they had been through. Barnabas vouching for Saul in front of the apostles in Acts chapter 9. Barnabas seeing the Gentiles converted in Acts chapter 11, travels all the way down to Tarsus to find his brother Saul and bring him back to Antioch, as we discussed in in chapter 11. All the things that they had been through, living together for the first two years in Antioch, teaching and preaching daily in the synagogues and in their home together. The first missionary journey that they took together and all of the wonderful results. They had perhaps had many hours of discussion and disagreement on the fallout that they had about what to do with those Judaizers that we just read about. But they got over that. They settled it together and stood up together at that council to proclaim the truth at the general assembly. Both of their names are highlighted together in the letter that comes back to the churches. The entire relationship gone in one verse. It's very interesting, the two Greek verbs describing the two different types of conflicts. One in Acts 15.2 and the other here. The word in verse 2, the dissension is not a personal fighting. There's no anger involved with this. It's it's the thought of fighting the rebels in an army. There's nothing personal about it. It's strong dissension, but that dissension is gathering up of arms to do battle. Yet, the word here in verse 39, translated as sharp, Disagreement is anger. There's no anger associated with Paul fighting for the purity of gospel in verse 2. Here in 39, it's the same word that Paul uses when he was incensed seeing the pagans in Athens. It's being exasperated, angry, intensely frustrated. It's like, I should not have to be dealing with this. This is not business. This is personal. Is that not one of the saddest verses in the New Testament? 
Our text ends. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, where he was from. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of our Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening churches. To our knowledge, the two were never reconciled. The rest of the book of Acts and the completing of the New Testament with all of his epistles belong solely to the Apostle Paul. Paul does mention Barnabas as part of recounting events, but there is no mention of what happens between these glorious men of God. From this point forward, many scholars, including Dr. Ferguson, believe that Barnabas may have died in Cyprus. We simply do not know. He is simply gone, forcing us to assume that it must have been Paul that was the righteous one here. Obviously, Barnabas is put on the shelf, maybe dies. We don't know. He's never heard from again. Yet Paul, it's Paul that writes the majority of the New Testament. It's Paul who the focus is on. It's Paul that Luke follows and records the rest of the book of Acts and beyond. You know, there's something as we begin to close about the dying words of a man. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4, starting at verse 6. I have difficulty reading these words, so I'm prepared. Verse 6, 2 Timothy 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To Timothy, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is alone with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, Timothy. For he is very useful to me in ministering. That's the same John Mark that abandoned him on his first missionary journey. That is the same Mark that Barnabas wanted to take on his second missionary journey that caused the division and would sever the relationship. This is the last time he mentions something positive about anybody before he dies. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is useful to me 
for ministry. As we close, what are our takeaways from this amazing passage other than the fact that we're right being Presbyterian? Here are three. First, there are things worth fighting for, brethren. And it's best to know ahead what these are. These are things that are the esse, that are essential for the Christian faith, for your walk with the Lord. Start with the Apostles' Creed. The very things that were fought over in our passage, the deity of Christ, the salvation by grace through faith alone. Be willing to die for these. Secondly, there are things not worth fighting or dying for that unfortunately cause divisions among us that should not divide us. For these, we need to trust the process. Trust the leadership that God has given you. Trust the leadership both in the home and the church. Yeah, but I don't like some of the things done around here. I don't like some of the decisions that are made around the new building. There are changes I would like to see in worship. Things taken out, things put back in. My only word to you is get behind your pastors and elders. We feel the same way. There's things we'd all like to change. But those things are not worth fighting for. Finally, as is usually how we end every sermon at Redeemer, everything in our lives as believers revolves around the gospel of Jesus Christ. For us, we must trust and live in the comforting knowledge that a sovereign God who loves us has designed the steps and the problems and the conflicts that we see. And the fact that he loves us and he's sovereign sometimes needs to be enough for us. Question. Do you think right now, Barnabas, in glory, would change one thing about the circumstances that we've read about in chapter 15? I don't think he would. Oh, Christian, facing difficulties in personal relationships, pressures from a world gone completely crazy, your sovereign God, who loves you, is in control. Our only response needs to be what we sung this morning. Savior, if in Zion City I, through grace, a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the sinner's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children. No, two conflicts, 
two brothers, two outcomes, one gospel and sovereign God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed happy to be Presbyterians. But Lord, we're most happy and rejoiceful and rejoicing and thankful that we know you and we understand the gospel of Christ is the only way to salvation. Lord, will you help us focus on those things eternal? Help us to forgive each other those times we need to and put petty differences aside. Lord, thank you for these two men of God who fashioned the, uh, the entire history of this church. Thank you for that assembly. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for Barnabas. Thank you for John Mark, redeemed and reclaimed by his new uncle in the faith, the Apostle Paul. Thank you for this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.